Last time, I talked about the air of desperation, which seemed to drive all Richard's actions in the last few months of his reign, especially the suspicions he harboured about the loyalty of some of his key allies. This was not paranoia, for Richard was right to be suspicious of them since their loyalty was only skin deep. The trouble was that there was nothing more that Richard could do about that. There were only so many hostages he could take to ensure compliance. There was a limit to how many of his retainers he could task with watching those he did not trust. It's been said to me only recently how foolish it was of Richard to put his trust in Thomas Stanley, Henry's father-in-law. But what choice did he have? There was no great pool of replacements. And in any case, trying to remove Lord Thomas would only have precipitated chaos in the northwest, where his heir, Lord Strange, would have sought to take his father's place. What then was Richard to do? Exterminate whole noble families? He went as far as he dared by holding Stanley's son as a hostage, and even that was not enough to ensure Stanley's loyalty. As I've said elsewhere, Richard's power base was far too narrow, and the doubts which dogged his regime throughout the reign just would not go away. He could call Henry Tudor by any name he liked, but it did not improve his own standing. Rightly or wrongly, he did not inspire trust, and that alone could cost him his throne. But if you look at the situation on the eve of Henry's arrival in 1485, from Richard's point of view, he had done everything he could to strengthen his position. His armies were mustering, whether reluctantly or not, and all was in place to meet the pretender head on. Now, let's take Henry's standpoint as he prepared to invade England for the second time. In the forefront of his mind would have been the reasons for failure in the autumn of 1483, basically insufficient support from the men who mattered most. Hence it was vital for Henry to ensure that more noble support was in place this time. Clearly, he was in close touch with the Stanley brothers, Thomas and William. Whilst I have hardly mentioned the younger Stanley, William, who was a power in North Wales, his role in the Bosworth campaign was to be vitally important. Henry's choice of landing place had much to do with his expectation of Stanley support. He knew very well that he could not overthrow Richard with only a few thousand foreign mercenaries at his disposal. From his secret negotiations, it seems that Henry had received encouragement from the Stanleys, and also from one of the influential Talbot family, and the Stanleys' nephew, Sir John Savage. In South Wales, a prominent landowner, Rhys Ap Thomas, also promised his help. Henry expected, too, that his uncle, Jasper Tudor, as former Earl of Pembroke, would also gather some support in South Wales. Taking all these pledges together, it is easy to understand why Henry made his first landing in Wales. That was where his likely support lay, Wales and Cheshire. He would have known that persuading the likes of the Duke of Norfolk to join his cause was a waste of effort. 
but he must have hoped for Northumberland's support. As we already know, Northumberland was no friend to King Richard, but he would not act until the odds were in his favour. Anxious to keep his fragile coalition together, the flaky Marquis of Dorset had already tried to leg it, Henry moved as fast as he could and set sail with a fleet of 30 ships from the French port of Harfleur on the 1st of August 1485. The core of his invasion force was several hundred English and Welsh exiles, but they were bolstered by mercenaries, including perhaps 2,000 Normans under the command of Philibert de Chandet. These had been provided by the French king Charles VIII, and no contemporary description of them is very complimentary. I think if you imagine the Dirty Dozen, you might have to Google the Dirty Dozen. In the film, The Dirty Dozen, the jails were scoured for suitably desperate villains to recruit. And that probably gives you some idea of what these Normans were like. Only there were a lot more than a dozen. With them was a small force of Scottish mercenaries under Sir Alexander Bruce, perhaps almost a thousand strong. This motley invasion force landed late in the day on the 7th of August 1485 at Milford Haven. By the following day, Henry had received support from some of his uncle Jasper's adherents, but other news was less encouraging. Sir John Savage and Resap Thomas appeared to be taking a position to oppose his advance rather than join it. Morale in Henry's camp must have been low, for they expected at any moment to come under attack. Support was uncertain, whereas opposition seemed inevitable. It did not help matters that the Welsh and French contingents seemed to be forever at each other's throats and had to be separated. Indeed, the hostility of Resap Thomas towards the French might well have been why the Welshmen did not declare for Henry. A lot is airy-fairily said now about Welsh support for Henry Tudor. But at the time, if support existed, it was invisible. Remember how little enthusiasm there was for the would-be Tudor king in the rebellion of 1483? So Henry skirted the coast, unwilling to risk heading inland. At Cardigan, he issued a declaration to his subjects, exhorting them to come to his aid. In that letter, he played upon Welsh nationalism and presented himself as something of a rep for Wales. He also promised dire punishment for any who failed to support him. So Richard was not alone in that. Henry's plan, communicated to the Stanleys and a few others, was to cross the Severn at Shrewsbury. And the idea was that his supporters would rally to join him there. Yet, if the likes of Resap Thomas now opposed him, Henry's invasion would be dead and buried, because he would not even get to Shrewsbury. Fortunately for him, after some bargaining, Rees joined Henry, probably with about 2,000 men, just before Shrewsbury. But even then, he hedged his bets by leaving two brothers and 500 men behind, just in case things went badly with Henry. Welsh support alone, though, was not enough. Henry needed the Stanleys. Though William Stanley arrived, it was not at the head of a large army. For it turned out 
that he had come only to talk. We are told that he reassured Henry that when the moment came, the Stanleys would support him. But how confident could Henry have been that these nobles, who he did not know at all, would keep their secret promises? He must have feared that they might change their minds at any point. Even so, the capitulation of Shrewsbury enabling Henry to cross the Severn could only have occurred because the Stanleys urged it. When he heard of it, Richard was very angry because the River Severn was an effective barrier to stop Henry going wherever he pleased. Now the pretender could do exactly that. The position of the Stanleys was complicated and the movements of the two Stanley brothers during August bear this out. Before Henry landed, Thomas Stanley left the court at Nottingham, but was only allowed to do so by leaving his son, Lord Strange, as a surety for his actions. When by the 10th or at the latest the 11th of August, the king learned of Henry's arrival, he recalled Thomas. The latter pleaded illness. A dangerous new one had begun to occur at this time, called the sweating sickness, but it's unlikely that Thomas had it. I think he was probably offering an excuse to gain manoeuvring time, and this is supported by an attempted escape by Lord Strange. It was unsuccessful, and Strange was interrogated, and implicated his uncle William in treason, but not his father. He then wrote to his father, urging him to bring all his force to join Richard. But of course he may have been coerced, and he probably knew that his father would do what he thought was best, regardless of anything his son said. Since William was now, as it were, outed as a traitor, Lord Thomas needed to be even more careful, and as we know, he rarely showed his hand. He took his forces towards Leicester, where the royal army was to gather. Was he returning to the royal fold? Who was he trying to reassure, Richard or Henry? The importance of Thomas Stanley is crucial. His lack of support for Henry in 1483 had destroyed the revolt. Would he do the same again? Henry could only hope for the best and advanced from Shrewsbury through Stafford to Lichfield and then on to Tamworth. He decided to head for Leicester and bring the king to battle before all the royal forces arrived. On the way, he was joined by several more of Edward IV's household men, who, though pardoned by Richard for their part in the 1483 revolt, had not yet received all their lands back. There is that motive again, land, and the student of this period ignores it at their peril. As Henry advanced, Thomas Stanley, with his force of about 5,000 men, retreated, keeping close but not treasonably close. Then, at an abbey near Atherston, not far from Lichfield and close to Watling Street, the road to London, Henry met both the Stanley brothers, and it seems likely that they reaffirmed their intention to support him. This was Henry's first face-to-face -face meeting with Thomas, and I can't help thinking that it was significant, both symbolically and practically. After all, why would Thomas take the risk of meeting his son-in-law if his intention to support him was not serious? At the same time, Stanley's nephew, Sir John Savage, 
at last arrived with his retinue, and since he was part of the Stanley family, this was a clear sign that they were committed. So, after all the extensive preparation and waiting, Henry Tudor was at last poised to face Richard III in battle. He was outnumbered, and his fate would hang on the decisions of others. But there was nothing more he could do except pray. So we return to Richard, who we are told expressed delight when hearing of Henry's arrival. But a few days later, in mid-August, he was surprised to receive a delegation from his loyal citizens of York, inquiring what arrangements had been made to muster their men. It appeared that the Earl of Northumberland had issued no instructions, and that did not augur well for the likely arrival of the northern troops. It must have seemed to Richard that Northumberland was dragging his feet, and of course he was. This brings me to an important general point about noble loyalties. I get sick and tired of folk these days, half a millennium later, lamenting how fickle some of the nobles were in their loyalty. Just put yourself in the position of the Earl of Northumberland, who has often been criticised. Scarcely a generation before, his father had been killed, along with many, many others of his clients and tenants, loyally supporting King Henry VI. He himself had been stripped of his title and imprisoned for years. You don't forget that in a hurry. But never mind just the Earl himself. How keen would his own men be to enter into another brutal contest, which would bring them little gain and possible death? The Earl's concern was the welfare of the House of Percy, which in turn meant the welfare of all those who served him. What did Northumberland owe Richard, a man who had usurped much of the power he had expected to have in the North himself, and now a king surrounded by doubt and suspicion? I think it's perfectly possible to argue that Northumberland owed Richard nothing. Yes, some will bang on about Richard being his anointed king, etc., etc., but we're talking about actual death and destruction here, not just of one man, but all his affinity. For the men of the time, it was not some academic exercise. Anyway, brief rant over. Aside from Northumberland's sluggish response to the call to arms, Another factor must have worried Richard. The very fact that Henry had managed to cross the country from the Welsh coast to the heart of England unopposed was a grave cause of concern. Why had no one resisted him at a point where his army was very small indeed? Nevertheless, when Richard set out from Nottingham on about the 20th of August to join his mustering army at Leicester, he could console himself with the news that John Howard, Duke of Norfolk, and his son, the Earl of Surrey, were on their way. And although not all the other nobles had answered his call, he could reassure himself that battles could be won without them. The evidence we have suggests that it was not only nobility who stayed away, but many of the gentry too. Yet Richard's army was, we are told, still significantly larger than that of Henry and I see no reason to doubt that, especially when on the 21st of August Northumberland's tardy army arrived. 
Richard, confident in his own ability as a general and a soldier, would have been pretty bullish as he awaited the battle. He had seen battle many times before and had participated in the most brutal fighting, whereas his opponent, Henry, knew nothing of battle at all. Richard would have known that if he could kill Henry, then loyalty to his own cause would suddenly be rock solid. He probably still hoped that both Stanleys would see him gaining the upper hand and throw their weight behind him. This is not so far-fetched because, notwithstanding their promises to Henry, both Stanley brothers intended to be on the winning side. If Henry's battle line showed serious signs of collapsing, I think it's reasonable to assume that he was not going to be king. So, with preparations made and prayers offered up on both sides, battle was about to commence. <laughs>